This is what I would call an intentional social movement. It's a change in culture. It's a really fundamental transformation of learning. It's big, it's exciting, and more and more people will want it and we should make our contribution to make that number higher. This is Brett Clark and you're listening to Voices from the Field, insights from educators who are positively impacting student learning in the classroom. In this episode, we have Michael Fullen, author of many books on education and the global leadership director with New Pedagogies for Deep Learning, being interviewed by Joe Anderson, co-executive director of the Consortium for Educational Change. Michael discusses the right drivers and the wrong drivers in education, how using the right drivers like collaboration and capacity building are the keys to student success. He discusses the coherence framework from his book that he co-authored with Joanne Quinn and how that system approach can lead to success for teachers and students. He also shares how deep learning is impactful for students, but especially impactful for students who are disconnected from school. You said, quote, um, we have the wrong drivers on the run, perhaps. <laughs> um, but that doesn't necessarily mean we'll do the right thing. Um, it's freedom from maybe some of those kinds of oppressive, compliance-driven, heavy-handed kinds of initiatives. But without those, it doesn't mean necessarily we do the right thing or, or employ the right drivers. So uh, could you maybe tease out that context and also how you see that playing out in the United States? Um, but also how that leads to the coherence framework and in particular uh, diving more deeply into good pedagogy. Well, I, first of all, I appreciate our longstanding relationship uh, when we first uh, encountered when I did the critical friend evaluation. I should say that uh, I always learn a lot. I mean, it sounds like I'm doing a, giving advice, which I am, but ma mainly we do these in order to uh, figure out what's happening. We're still we're still angling to be in the next book. <laughs> oh well, yeah, I should I should now with deep learning that could be easily be the case. So, so that that is uh, that's been a good relationship. Secondly, I would say, CEC was ahead of its time. You were doing things I don't know 20 years ago or more, that were. Uh, on the right track, but the conditions were not favorable enough for it to take off. So that's what where we are in 2017. That's the great news that the pieces there are now for uh, for really connecting to and leveraging. And you're in a very good position because you've led up to it with a, a cadre of people and good relationships and good ideas. So that's one. The second thing about the long the wrong drivers being on the run. Uh, the wrong driver that really was around the the misplacing uh, of accountability. People, of course, said we should have accountability, but then they went about it in a ham-handed way, overloaded it. Uh, it was uh, it gave feedback without any route to improvement. Uh, it was the it was uh, the wrong mindset, uh, kind of the attitude of uh, we've got to make corrections, put our thumbs down, all of that, which is in human terms demotivating to say the least. So it failed miserably, and we hammered home at that for. The, uh, especially in the 2011 paper that I did on the wrong drivers. So that, that's one piece. Then uh, there were, when we did that, there, w there was an uptake at the district level, for example, because they said, yeah, you're right, we knew you, but it's the people above us that are the problem. And so the people above us, uh, they began to notice, California at one, for example, where we work now, and began really uh, to say, this is, these were the wrong drivers, we've got to change it. And California, the state superintendent, literally in their accountability paper said, we are moving from the wrong drivers to the right drivers. So the wrong drivers, punitive accountability. 
for example. Right Drivers is about uh, collaboration, capacity building, uh, and having to mobilize that around moral purpose. And now what we are finding is that uh, there's strong legitimacy of the right drivers, but the capacity to really work with them effectively has not been developed on a wide scale. So that's where the big gap is now, and that's where your work comes into play. CEC, you're a capacity builder. Right. You are building capacity with others, and that's what we're doing and quite a bit of our work. So this is a good, a good timing, and I think it is, uh, psychologically, it's easier to attack what you don't like you get more energy for that than to put a lot of energy into creating what you should like. Right. And the latter part is much more demanding, and that's where we are, I think. Yeah, okay. Well, talk a bit more about the coherence framework and the four components of that and how you see them fitting together. Uh, we found that very useful two, three years ago when we were talking. Our, yeah. our friend and colleague Patrick Dolan uh, really integrated that with a lot of his thinking and our work in terms of our approach to systems change. Talk more about that and yeah. how it leads to um, the quadrant of pedagogy. When we... Um when we kind of work on a solution uh, and try to get it right, as right can be, uh, it always encourage me, encourages me when people like Patrick recognize that this is it, like because he, he's coming from the, the, a different applied orientation than we are, and that for him to recognize that is a, it's a kind of a confirmation that we're on the right track. So we appreciate that. And what we've tried to do in our system work is uh, is really say okay we need changes in the whole system it can't be just this and that innovative project and uh, i'd also underscore this by saying i've said before about our own work uh, and i think more generally this is true that 80 percent of the best ideas come from leading practitioners and that's we interact with leading practitioners that's why we learn so much and so when we started, we did a whole series of workshops in California because there was great uptake about this, uh, the right driver, so to speak. Uh, they were saying, uh, they, they were, I, I'm gonna say, a lot of people were operating under the, under the radar. And when they saw our, our formulations, they said, yeah, this is it, right track, let's do it. So what we did in the, in the coherence book, first of all, we knew how to do it because we'd done 200 workshops on the ideas and, and said at one point, Joanne Quinn and myself, who's the co-author, said, we better you know, present this back to the field in a more systematic way because it's really clicking. So in what we try to do in um, system work is make it accessible and not just overwhelmingly, uh, you know, system work sounds so abstract to most people. So we said, how do you concretize this? And we said, let's look for the smallest number of key factors. Let's make sure that they do cover the waterfront, the, the big ones. Uh, that they're not, uh, you know, three or four or five in number, it turns out to be four, that they are uh, comprehensive uh, in that they are mutually exclusive, they don't kind of confuse us with the concepts. So we arrived at this uh, through kind of trial and uh, getting reaction to these four quadrants, focusing direction, collaborative cultures, learning or pedag deep learning, as we call it now, and securing accountability. So a couple of points in moving from the wrong drivers to the right drivers. Uh, the right drivers uh, were retained in the sense that uh, collaborative cultures is really capacity building. So that, that coincides. Uh, deep learning is really pedagogy. We have pedagogy as a right driver, so that was okay. Uh, but we had to go back and say, well, what is the goal here? What are the overall goals? So we wanted to 
have um, captured that focusing direction allows you to say this is about students, this is the moral purpose, uh, this is grounded in, um, in, in the whole child, but it's, it, and it subsumes also literacy, numeracy, the core ones, but it's really about the whole child, social emotional development, uh, developing people for the, for the 21st century. And then we had criticized accountability, but in converting it, because people said to us, we love your wrong drivers, but tell us how to implement the right drivers. So we said, uh, that, that's a good challenge. And we said, we better incorporate accountability, because we said there's a wrong version, but there has to be a right version. It can't be a non-version. And so that's the securing accountability as you build up accountability at the level of uh, transparent practice with collective and self-responsibility. So it really does a better job than external accountability. Uh, we call it internal accountability outfacing to external rather than the other way around. So that was worked out as a very complete model for us. It's, uh, it's not a one, two, three, four proposition. It's like we call it now the pulsating heart. Four chambers, they all have to have blood flowing. If one is, uh, is not working, you're kind of uh, the organization or yourself are, are, are sick or worse. So, so we've got to get these four. So we treat it as a dynamic uh, set of things to do. We have lots of examples about what it looks like. It has, I'm going to say intuitively, appeal to large swaths of people. They said, aha, this is the answer. It really, it really makes sense to us. It's only four things. We see how it gels, so there's, there's big excitement now. And then one of the pieces that uh, we talked to you about uh, earlier, CEC, is that, and it applies to some of our earlier work, that the whole problem and the, the weakest part of the four, in some ways, I would say, is learning or pedagogy. It's not, the, it's not the strength of the teaching profession historically behind the classroom door. The flourishing of pedagogy has not been uh, the attention getter. And the people that did networks like Patrick and you and others were getting excitement and involvement, but they didn't have the expertise in the pedagogical quadrant. And so that's how we hink, uh, linked up recently in uh, uh, the last few years, the last three years, uh, uh, your group and our group, to say, well, not only is pedagogy the neglected part, but there's new stuff here that's even more exciting. It's deep learning. It is uh, changing pedagogy much more thoroughly than we thought. It's different outcomes. It's the six C's of global competencies. These are very specific. We can operationalize them. We can work together to get them. So I think it's building up the uh, pedagogy in the deep learning sense, making that flow with the four things. And when you do have those four things, when you have the partnership with districts and schools that are willing to do it, you really get some great things happening. Really release some energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah you really attract energy, yeah. you generate energy, and uh, you, uh, you cause energy. We, you know, we've had over the years, and that's part of the sometimes the reaction we get to when we talk about the six C's and the new pedagogy. Well, there are a lot of things that have been around for a while, project-based yeah. learning, inquiry, yeah. deep engagement, uh, progressive education, individualized instruction, personalized mm -hmm. learning. You know, there's a, the, what I think you just described is putting those in a context where they're systemic rather than yeah. just random acts of improvement or yeah. innovation and so that it's more systemic. But talk more, there are a couple things that I think that are really exciting to us. One, one is the notion of precision. 
um, and what you mean by precision, because if that doesn't occur, then we're not talking about getting to the level of depth in, in yeah. teaching and learning that we want. And, and the other has to what really ultimately motivates, uh, mm -hmm. what moves us systemically coming out of the, in, the passion and, and moral yeah. purpose of practitioners, starting with students. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about how that helps to kind of move this agenda. Yeah, on the systemic piece, uh, I remember Peter Sange, who I interact with uh, here and there about the system, systems uh, work, and uh, he had one analogy where you know, the, the jet engine and flying came together because there was 40 years of uh, pieces of that were necessary that were invented separately, but then at some point it came together and systemically it really then uh, connected. And so I think that the work that a lot of us have been doing in educational change since really since 1970, uh, it represents that uh, a lot of pieces are happening, but they weren't connecting, and that what we needed to do was have a, uh, a systems uh, kind of take on it, and I really think coherence making is a systems statement for, uh, from us. It's if you put these four things together and they synergize, and they, they kind of feed on each other, you really have something to work on. So I think the systems work is, uh, yeah, and we make in our deep learning project to say, uh, yeah, project-based learning is a uh, piece of it, and some inquiry uh, strategies are a piece of it. But unless you kind of uh, put it together, where you're, where you have exciting learning outcomes, our six C's of character education, going to creative thinking, uh, unless you have uh, some deeper outcomes in mind, and then unless you have a really deeper pedagogy that we have these four pillars of the learning environment, which is partnerships, pedagogy, learning environment, and leveraging digital. Again, we think those four things cover the pedagogical waterfront. So you have to get those pieces together and have them uh, feed on each other. And then uh, the precision thing you, uh, and this is, again, when, we, when I say learn from leading practitioners, what happens is we're working on problems jointly. And it's not that the leading practitioner always says, okay, here's the solution, and we write it down. It's that when we interact with it, we can we sometimes supply the language for what they're talking about. And so when it comes to things like collaboration, you can say, oh, collaboration, people can say, that's great, we agree on it, let's do it. But if they're not precise about what good collaboration looks like, or pedagogy, if they're not precise about why, what is it that it, doing it looks like? Why does it, and how does it, and show me that it does, that it excites students and teachers equally, and it produces these outcomes. So the pursuit of solutions, to me, is the pursuit of precision. And that here is the change uh, insight. Uh, strive for precision, but don't impose it. The moment you mandate something is the moment you start to lose it. The moment you figure out a solution that people like is the moment they'll take it up. Yeah. And so this is why precision is so virtuous. Uh, you don't have to impose it. If it works and it's there and people are experiencing it, they flock to it. Yeah, it is yeah. contagious. Yeah. You mentioned some research that, about PLCs that yeah. kind of distinguish between superficial collaboration versus precise and more in-depth. Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of us know... Um, uh, in general, that PLCs are a dime a dozen, and, and only some of them work. Yeah. So that that's kind of one context. But I I like the this piece of research that uh, uh, I encountered, which had was a study of uh, eight uh, middle schools, 
And these were all middle schools that were called, they called themselves PLC schools. So the researchers had a survey. And when they asked general questions like to teachers on a survey, uh, to what extent do you think teachers should collaborate? And things along those lines. They got very high percentage across the board, all eight schools. When they asked what I would call a precision question, which is the following as an example, to what extent do uh, teachers in your school uh, work together to examine student work to analyze what might be needed to improve the learning and then decide what to do to improve the learning. To what extent do you do that? Uh, in four of the eight schools, uh, most teachers said, that's the way we do things here. In the other four, they were very low on that. They apparently weren't doing it. And then when you looked at the achievement results over time, you can, not only, you can guess pretty readily, it was those that were operating at a more specific solution level that were producing better achievement. So this is why we reject these kind of global labels, PLC, uh, or even collaborative cultures we reject as a label. We want to say, what, is the, what are the characteristics of a collective, collective uh, collaboration? And when you take our quadrants, we are operationalizing each of those four pieces. So collaborative cultures, we're saying, what does it look like? And these days, uh, not only do we produce the odd video, but the field is producing videos a dime a dozen, that, so you can actually see this, these four-minute clips that you can use in uh, training or workshops or development to really show people what it looks like in practice. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. Um, talking about excitement, um, one of the things that emerges from those videotapes that uh, we've seen through your team and in some of the forums, the International Summit in Toronto this last year, is just how excited students get. Yeah. Um, and and that in some ways drives teacher excitement and passion and and influences up and across, as, as you've talked about it. Um, can you talk more about that? And also uh, something that I think is a very powerful notion that around moral purpose, which is the equity hypothesis and yeah. what you mean by that. Yeah, I think, uh, um, unfortunately, one could say that the uh, school system, the current school system that was, I don't know, invented 150 years ago, it hasn't changed very much over that 100, 150 years. And because it's not as relevant anymore to uh, the lives of students and teachers, for that matter, because the environment has changed quite radically and there's more attraction in the environment, learning-wise, than there is in the school, uh, even though the environment isn't organized uh, so much. Because of that, that uh, schooling has become more and more boring, I guess I would say. The data are pretty clear. As you go up the grade levels, students are less engaged. And so if that, you know, if the students are bored, I'm going to say the teachers must be bored, because it's very hard to teach bored students. But still, there. So, so what's what's happening there is that kind of the old thing isn't working. So that, but it hasn't been working for a while. Why have why hasn't something come along that to disturb it? And this is where the deep learning stuff, which probably started in this or that school, but our interest was not in the exceptions. We want it mainstream. So that's why we created the deep learning system with clusters of schools working on this, helping to create it together on the ground. And what this has done is uh, because it's fundamental to the model that the uh, teaching practices and the outcomes are uh, amenable to identifying personal purpose, passion, working with others on issues that are, that are important, solving problems that are relevant for today, not for tomorrow. So the whole thing has inspired uh, students and teachers to uh, do something that they find incredibly exciting. 
And that's why teachers, most teachers came into the profession in the first place. It kind of got um, missed in the school, wasn't fulfilling that need. But now that we have been able to see this in, 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 in numbers, we really see that uh, the, the social movement part, the spark here, once you get over the initial fear of this, because it's a big change, is that teachers start to see students uh, go, uh, go like this. Students start to work with each other in different ways. And when you think of um, motivation, uh, you just go back to the fundamentals here. Good change is nothing more than linking in to motivation of people to want to do something intrins intrinsically important. And Dan Pink has pretty much laid this out, showing how extrinsic motivation can only help get you blips, it never lasts. And the intrinsic motivators, he named three, we've added a fourth. His three were uh, uh, sense of purpose, which is our moral purpose. Second one was mastery. Ours is capacity building. You get better at something, you want to do more. The third was a degree of autonomy. Can't be told what to do in a narrow way. And we now, with our autonomy collaboration combination, have that nicely placed, I think. And then the fourth uh, that he didn't say so explicitly, but we know to be fundamental, I'm talking about intrinsic, is connection. Connecting to other people to do something worthwhile is a humanly innate uh, motivator. And our deep learning is based on that with students working together, teachers, families now are linked into this. So all the, all the intrinsic motivators are, are ganging up on the solution in a good way. Unleashed. Yeah. Yeah. And the equity hypothesis. And yeah, the equity. It's something when we shape this, and now we're in uh, just finishing our third year, uh, we didn't try to operationalize the theory of practice. We knew it was on the right track. We said co-create it with a thousand schools, working in clusters, and uh, don't constrain them, but help lead it, enable it, and then pull out the learning. So that's what we've done. And so I call them emerging discoveries uh, because they weren't in our a priori model. And one of them has been this incredibly exciting discovery that deep learning is good for all students, but it's especially good for students that are more disconnected. That, that those that are those that are disconnected don't find schooling relevant. They come from different backgrounds. They don't feel like they belong in schools. So there's this really fundamental alienation of those kinds of students. And if the learning becomes so relevant that it's it, it, it draws you in instead of alienating, instead of repelling you, then that's where you get the excitement. And we see this because we now have a number of vignettes. I've been collecting them. We've got 50 of them. Uh, real students, give them a pseudonym, but basically based on, totally on factual, where they were, uh, where the, the people that were there will say this student was, you know, completely out of it. And now they're kind of in the center of learning and they're thriving and they're so articulate. People are so surprised they never would have predicted. It's almost impossible to believe that it's happening. So that's what, um, what's, what is happening. And I think the, the analogy may be, uh, the movie, you know, uh, Hidden Figures. Yes. So I want to. The, the the image here is every student is a hidden figure. That's the educational challenge. Even students that are doing well, let's say, if you ask the, what I'm going to call a radical question, is uh, could students get good grades and be still not good at life? It's a rhetorical question. We know intuitively that that's the case. You can have a, stu a student who's not very functional when it comes to complex life. So I think this. Uh, Figure, the education's job is to understand the hidden figure 
pull it out, but to have, it in, have the interaction in groups where people are influencing each other and that the citizenship, uh, for example, increases and the ability to work together and to really solve problems and to, uh, and to be the opposite of alienation, be, be engaging. And uh, we say engage the world, change the world. It's that fundamental. Where do you hope to see this work, say, in four or five years? What's your vision for it? Uh, well, I don't know that, uh, I mean, I can answer the question in some ways, but um, what attracts me to this work actually is not the obvious, this is moral purpose fulfilled. I mean, I, I like that. But really what attracts me is you take a human problem that's really difficult to solve, and you start to get there and you interact with a bunch of people, including those that are implementing it, and you, you actually make really fundamental headway. That's the excitement. So I think where this goes in four or five years, if I were to uh, project what is most desirable, and uh, I think it's not entirely likely in four or five years, but it's on that track, and it would be this, is that you see graduating from public schools hordes of students, and I mean en masse, who are steeped in the six C's, and that these will be the change agents you need. Children and students are not, uh, they're not committed to the status quo. The adults are. The students are pretty open-ended about the future. More than that, they're worried. They see the, the world kind of deteriorating before them almost because of the media and the things that are happening. And that they, you know, it's, it's like the student who might say, uh, the world needs me. I need to be a citizen of tomorrow today. And it's not that so much they're altruistic, want to save the world. It's just say, human beings should be like this. That's what they say. And unless they're really damaged by life, which a lot of people are, and that's why we go back to the inequity hypothesis. How do you, how do you in Pedro Nogueira's words, how do you uh, countervail the consequences of intergenerational poverty? Can you possibly do that? And we think there's enough evidence that deep learning can possibly do that. Do you have any um, advice at this point in our partnership for CEC and our partner districts and schools? Yeah, the main advice is, uh, Let's do some of it. Let's do more of this. More and more examples of this, because when you, um, when we do the examples, we are not implementing an a priori intact model. We are innovating uh, with a framework, and when we innovate, we're producing concrete examples that we can retain that the rest of the other people can be interested in. So this can flourish. This is what I would call an intentional social movement. It's a change in culture. It's a really fundamental transformation of learning. It's big, it's exciting, and more and more people will want it, and we should make our contribution to make that number higher than lower. You know, I wanted to go back to precision, Michael, because uh, that's such a, uh, such a provocative uh, idea for us, I think. Um, one of the tools that your team has helped develop, and maybe you could explain them a little bit more, are these learning progressions around the six C's, for example. Or I think you have also such progressions around what's a really good uh, design for learning in terms of pedagogy. Can you talk more about how you're building into this work um, some of, as you learn from the field, some of the progressions, quote unquote, that help get to precision? Yeah, let me um, kind of uh, back into it or forward into it. I'm not sure which is the right metaphor here. Uh, but the first que question I think uh, that some people have is, is deep learning, is it just another project? So we've got 40 projects, and now we have 41. And we have tried to be very clear that this is a change in culture. 
It's not, if those systems that have said, here's a project, let's try it, have been less successful than those districts that have said, here's a project can help change our culture towards something more fundamental. When they do the second thing, they get more results. So when now we come to the question of specificity, uh, that what we've tried to do with the tools, and it's a pretty comprehensive model, even though it's got a small number of pieces, but if I go from the outcomes, we have a rubric that assesses the learning progressions around the six C's. For each one, each C would have three or four dimensions. Let's say it's communication or creativity or character education. Uh, what, are, what, are the, what is actually the operational definition of it? What do early versions look like and what do later versions? So that's framework. We have uh, six, uh, we have uh, rubrics that uh, assess the four pillars of the learning environment. That's in the school about the leveraging digital and the pedagogical practices. We have a third one, I'm working backwards to the bigger picture, third one that looks at the collaborative conditions at leadership of the school. And then the fourth one is the immediate infrastructure at the, uh, at the cluster level or the district level. And the final one is the policy context. So we have uh, tools, if you like, for all of those five levels. And the idea is if you don't have the tools, people are at sea. They say, how do we do this? Where do we start? If you make the tools too uh, mechanical, step one, step two, people follow a recipe. So what we've done is that rubric is the best way of doing because the rubric, rubric doesn't give you a recipe. It gives you the images of what higher versions and lower versions look like. And people have said when we've evaluated these, they've said these are great because they help us focus without suffocating local context. Uh, they don't constrain us, they, they sense, free us because <clears throat> they help us focus and now we can get on with the work and we add our own parts to this, but at least we got a kickstart or we, we got there because the rubrics got us thinking. So I think, uh, I think at, the, at the beginning you have that and then what we want to see is uh, specificity, not a single specificity because there'll be variations on the theme, but when you have specificity you can sort it out, you can say, uh, what, what happens in effect is you jettison things that don't work and you retain things that don't. But because this is a living laboratory with 1,200 schools, because there's a lot to discover, you're going to have lots of specificity. And the notion of sorting this out, you can't sort out general concepts because it's one opinion after another. You can sort out specificity because it's there. It leads to something. Is it for us or not? And you also have a wonderful dimension to the rubric, which is an arrow pointing beyond the, yeah. uh, describe what you have in mind there. Yeah, we, we, when we started, we had to, in one sense, almost start in a vacuum, because yeah. we knew the six C's were right, but uh, hundreds of people have talked about it. Uh, all of those things that we said, what's our best, uh, our best shot at capturing it, which is comprehensive, uh, clear language, uh, uh, nothing left out, not overlapping concepts. So I think our team, and I didn't do a lot of this, did a fantastic job of the lay of the land. But then we said, uh, that if this is the lay of the land, let's, um, let's start to implement it. And we will do two things, uh, and now we're, we're actually just about to take stock on these two things. One is, is there anything in our formulation that needs to be tightened or refined? Is six, are, are the six C's the right C's? Should we have compassion instead of citizenship? Those questions. So, so we're going to, based on the, on the feedback from everybody, tweak, because we got it mostly right, but still needs tweaking. And then the arrow part that you referred to is saying, well, are we, are we discovering something that is, um, or is something uh, on, you know, loose end that we need to address? 
And I think some of that will be out. So if we take, for example, the big interest in social-emotional learning, and people say, well, where does that fit? We've got to have an answer for that. Our, our implementers have to have an answer for that. So we will do wise connections, I guess I'll say, elaborations, and that we want people not to be constrained by our initial framework, but to be, have an invitational for the arrow should point upward maybe and keep going and discover new things because this is a, a whole new frontier of knowledge for humankind. The six C's are powerful. Um, how do you see them relating to what in the states, most states now have adopted still in place, the common core state standards? How do you, what do you see the relationship there? I, I, in yeah. context-wise, I remember going up to uh, the international uh, summit in Ontario, yeah. uh, Toronto, last, met last May, or the previous, last November, uh, the York Regional School. And there was um, one session by some middle school teachers where they were really crafting yeah. with, with students some really exciting inquiry processes and deep learning. Uh, one of the things they started by doing, it was in geology, I think, or geography, geography. And they said, well, here are the provincial standards around what mm -hmm. students should learn in geography. Now, how would you put those into your own language as students? And what do those mean to you? So they began yeah. to, but talk about some of the content standards or they get to things like communication yeah. and critical thinking. They're interwoven, but how do you see the relationship? Well, the com when the Common Core came out, uh, initially, um, I, I, I liked it. I mean, I liked the direction it was going on. But my attitude was that to people was don't hitch your wagon to the Common Core. I mean, it's a version. Hitch your wagon to something more fundamental, such as you know our six C's and the kind of teaching. Or to put it another way, uh, you should be more interested in pedagogy than curriculum. That sounds an odd way of putting it. But if you go from pedagogy to curriculum, you'll get better results than if you go from curriculum to how I implement it pedagogically. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but because pedagogy is closer to the teacher's heart than what they do. So we want them to take, we want them to be the proactive consumers of the Common Core. And, uh, and, and uh, you, know, you, you, uh, you will have in that, that, that as you pursue deep learning, you better be able to show how you are uh, producing more literate, uh, more uh, literate students that are on all dimensions of that you would assess literacy. Uh, they would show up well in that relationship. So I want to. I want Mathematics people to Mathematics and math, all the subjects, science, social so, social studies or history. Yeah, they'll just be more more in, if they examine something in detail or science. They'll be uh, they'll know a lot more because the deep learning is so. Uh, deep learning means the learning sticks. And so if they do deep learning, it sticks. And they will be able to relate to that. So I do think that instead of thinking common core, how do we implement it? I'm thinking deep learning, how do we implement it? And then how do we take the common core and show that there's a relationship? That's, yes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let me try a metaphor on you. Um, it seems to me one of the exciting things here is, is in some ways it's like a Copernican revolution. Mm -hmm. So much of what we've talked about have revolved around the teacher. Okay. Yeah. And the student was the kind of the passive recipient of the teaching process. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me what you're talking about is a Copernican revolution where the, the, earth, the sun doesn't rotate around the earth, uh, the student around the teacher, but rather we're moving to understanding that, in fact, all of this ought to rotate around 
the student. And this is what we mean by student center. Is that, in your view, a, a, uh, an apt metaphor? Yeah, I think it's apt, except it's been around for a while and it hasn't taken hold. Okay. Right? People have said it's student-centered. Yeah. Uh, but I think what is uh, the fundamental principle of taking hold for us is that uh, each layer down is more liberated in terms of its learning as the solution. So uh, instead of the principal being the instructional leader who saves the school, the principal is the learning leader who causes teachers as a group to be better and more influential. And the same thing that you said about the students, that the teachers now are not, so uh, the teachers now are not the solution. The teachers liberate the students and groups to work on certain things, and that's, the, that's what they're doing. So I think it's more than just uh, the student. I think it really is the various layers of the system. Relationships. I mean, relationships, and I describe it as, uh, you know, exploit upward and liberate downwards. So that wherever you are in the group you're working with, you want to liberate them as a group so that they are more the center of gravity of their own learning that you're enabling and that you'll get better as a result of that. But then you need to be have that degree of liberation for what's above you, the principal. The principal needs that for the district upwards this way. So it's pretty much you want to keep your mind the system dynamics and on those principles of uh, what is going to flourish. Right. You've, you've talked about, uh, in some ways, giving permission down and liberating up. Yeah. Um, but you also talked about leading from the middle. Yeah. Explain that a little bit. Well, in the system terms, uh, I mean, we just take a simple, uh, you have the state level, the district level, and the individual schools, uh, 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 individual districts, let's say, rather the whole district. So, uh, the notion is that the top never can get it right because it's not stable and there's too many pieces. You go to the bottom, you say, the bottom lets your site-based management figure it out and will support you. That actually doesn't work out because people don't figure it out and there's no way of retaining the solutions. So if the top doesn't work and the bottom doesn't work by itself, where's the glue? The glue is in the middle. We want to make districts stronger, so it's not the only game in town, but uh, by, by the middle, I mean what would happen is individual districts, intra-district, would get its act together. Districts in clusters, cross, your, your work has districts learning from each other. That makes the middle stronger, so that they become uh, more cohesive at the middle in terms of the work. And then uh, in interacting with each other, middle qua middle. And then they start to be better partners upward because they don't just, they don't do what they're told and they just don't also reject everything. They say, state policy, how do we take this into account? So if I'm at the state level, I love the middle to get stronger because they're gonna be working on my agenda in one sense. And then they also then are better partners downward, to use this language, where they, uh, they try to work with their schools in a way that liberate the, what we're talking about, the groups of people, teachers and students and that. So it's the only, uh, it's the most, it's the highest leverage piece I can think of in the system to really kind of break it open and then to cause cohesion up and down and sideways. Thank you. Okay, good. That was Michael Fullen with CEC's Joe Anderson discussing the right drivers and deep pedagogy. CEC is working to pull school cohorts together around pedagogy and deep learning. To learn more about how your school or schools can join a cohort, please visit the CEC website at cecweb.org backslash npdl. 
For more information about CEC or the TURN networks, those can be found at cecweb.org or turnweb.org.